Good morning, and welcome to Grace Baptist Church. Thank you so much for joining us on this brisk winter morning. Whether you're joining us here in our auditorium or online, we thank you for taking time out of your morning to be with us. A couple of announcements before we begin our service. Uh, we do have several of our kids' classes that have started, birth through three-year-olds during the 9 a.m. service, and birth through fifth grade during our 1030 service. We also have many of our Adult Connect classes that have started, several during the 9 a.m. service and a few during the 1030 service as well. If you would like information on either of those things, you can see me in the back, you can email or call the office during the week, and we would love to get you or your children connected to one of our classes. We do have some things coming up this summer that we're planning on. Uh, the first is our junior camp, which is uh, June 14th through 19th. We will take our rising third through rising seventh graders uh, to the Anchorage Christian Camp just up the road in Lake Waccamaw. Uh, see me for a registration form for that. Also, we are planning our vacation Bible school for this summer. We really missed it last summer. We're looking forward to doing it again this summer, July 11th through 15th. So again, uh, keep those dates available. And we'll get you more information as we get a little closer. Uh, we also have several things that go on on Wednesday nights, from the uh, teens that meet to the college and young adults to Pastor Gary's class that meets uh, and Pastor Jay's uh, video that is released, all of that on Wednesday evening. Our next Sunday night Bible study and Lord's Supper will be... Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here today, worshiping with us here at Grace. We want to welcome you and thank you for... Uh, joining with us this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. And oh, before I do that, there is a chain that was found in the parking lot on the north side. Um, I think it's worth about a couple million. So if this is yours, I, I, I'm not sure what it, it doesn't. Anyway, there is a small gold chain here. If that should happen to belong to you, it was found in the north parking lot a little earlier today. You can certainly swing by and get it, but it is not worth $2 million. I promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful morning that we have today. God, for your grace and mercy and just the opportunity to be together as the family of God and as your church, worshiping and singing praises to you and spending time around your word. God, we pray that you would use this time to help us grow, change, to become more and more like Christ. Lord, we ask your blessing on our service this morning. And as always, just do your work in our hearts today for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, and great to see you this morning. I hope you're excited to be here. Uh, we're here today to offer our God our worship, our praise, and our thanks for all that he has done on our behalf. So let's stand as we sing, Jesus, thank you.
my all to him. That's how we ought to express our thanks to our God. It's not mostly through our words, and it's not even mostly through our worship and our songs. Uh, but the book of Romans chapter 12 says that our reasonable response to all the mercies of God is to offer him our lives as a living sacrifice, to offer him our very bodies. Let's be seated as we continue singing, Is Your All on the Altar? Listen, Valiant Gideon, 
shall conquer Midian. Here is my battle plan. Gideon, Gideon, marching off to fight. Pitcher in his left hand, trumpet in his right. Though it might seem foolish not to trust in the sword, Gideon was no fool, for he trusted in the Lord. Thank you, Camden. That was great. That was Camden Gibson. And uh, I just think it's amazing when we see our, our children involved in our worship like that. It just really does my heart good. I hope it does yours as well. And it's a great message for us. It reminds us uh, that God needs people in today's world uh, like Gideon. Gideon, of course, was one of the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Uh, but God needs people today in this culture who will take a stand for the cause of Christ and do that without fear and also without rancor, but to take a stand that is both loving and fearless. Uh, let's stand once again as we sing, For the Cause of Christ. For the cause of Christ the King, we give our lives and
Thank you for being here. I just want to welcome those of you that may be visiting with us for the very first time. We want to especially welcome you and thank you for joining us here at Grace. We've made available to you a card that should be in the pew in front of you. You can take your smartphone and scan that card and it will take you to a link that will just ask you a couple of brief questions that if you could get that back to us, we would then be able to answer any questions you have possibly about our ministry and also to follow up with you and get to know you a little bit more. And as always, you can visit our website, gracenc.org, and you can find out more information there. And sometimes you can get your questions answered there as well, but we would certainly like the opportunity to get to know you just a little bit better. We have been thematically and just choosing a few passages throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at chapter 11 this morning, so I would invite you to find Ecclesiastes 11, and we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of this chapter. And while you are finding that, I just want to um, briefly comment that the reason that we are looking at this particular text is Ecclesiastes, like other books of the Bible, as, as you know, there are different genres of literature that are found in the Scripture. And what that simply means is that God used under divine inspiration, human writers to write his word, and they wrote his word in different genres, or you could say it this way, I suppose, categories of scripture that would express what God wants us to know about him and how he wants us to live. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is a book of wisdom, and like the book of Proverbs, there is also some sections that are more poetic Okay, now before you yawn and go to sleep over poetry, we're not going to talk about meter and we're not going to talk about rhyming and all those things. In fact, Hebrew poetry doesn't really work that way. It works a little bit differently. But in the more poetic sections, there are times that under the inspiration of God that the writers of Scripture use very picturesque writing to describe for us some theological truths. And so, working through Ecclesiastes, I wanted to pick at least one of these more poetic sections to look at and to digest together and understand together. And so, Ecclesiastes 11 is the one that I want us to spend our time looking at this morning. 
Let me just remind you that last Sunday, if you were here or if you were not here, we talked about the issue of responsibility when it comes to work. We really talked about a theology of work and that work is part of God's design for humanity, that we are created to be creative, we are created to be productive. That's what God created humanity to be. And this beginning section of chapter 11 will, in many regards, go along with or build on this theme of work, being productive. And as we talked last week, that one of the, one of the reasons that some folks are not productive, they are not laboring and they are not working, is because they are, to be blunt, they're lazy. They are slothful. They just don't get around to work. It just doesn't appeal to them. They're the folks that say things like, oh, I love work. I can sit and watch it happen all day, okay? There are folks like that. Solomon here is not going to talk to us predict, uh, specifically about slothfulness, but he is going to describe for us other reasons why we are not productive at times and why there are times that we are not laboring for the gospel. We are not investing our time, energy, and talent the way that we should be. Sometimes our reasons are beyond laziness or beyond slothfulness, that there may be other reasons that you are being held back from laboring effectively for the cause of Christ. Last Sunday, after speaking about the issue of work, I went on to check a couple of news websites that I do um, at some point in time in the morning. Don't obsess over them. Don't spend hours and hours worrying about the news. I know some get wrapped up in it, whatever. I just want to know what's going on, and I move on with my day. I don't get wrapped up in the cycle of all the junk that goes on in our world. Some do. That's fine. I don't. But as I was reading through it, I came across the, an article that, that begs this question. How far will you go to get out of your responsibilities? How far are you willing to go to not do your job, to meet your obligations? Well, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Brandon Souls. He's 19 years old, and he lives in the state of Arizona. And just a couple of weeks ago, he was fined $550. He got himself into a little bit of trouble because, according to police, they received a phone call from Mr. Souls on February the 10th that a male subject whose hands were bound behind his back with a belt and a bandana stuffed down his throat had been kidnapped in front of his home. He had been knocked unconscious after these abductors hit him over the head, and they drove him around for a period of time throughout the day and eventually dropped him off at the side of the road. Police began investigating Soul's claims, and he actually told the police that the reason that he had been kidnapped was because his father had hidden large sums of money all over town. And these abductors wanted to know where the money was, and so they abducted him, they kidnapped him, they took him into their um, possession in order to find this money. The problem was um, Mr. Souls had no signs of injury. In fact, there were surveillance video that proved that his story was not true. 
And eventually, Mr. Souls admitted he made up the whole thing because he just didn't feel like going to work. Wow's right. Really? Sometimes it is absolute slothfulness that gets us in trouble. Other times, it is fear that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. Fear particularly of two things. One, we fear uncertainty. Does your world, does your life feel a little uncertain to you today? You trembling in fear over the unknown? What might happen? I'm not. Or are you just deathly afraid of risk? Ooh, something bad might happen, so I'm not going to do anything. Just going to sit and do nothing. As it's been said, there are three types of people in the world. There are people who are working and active. There are those that sit and watch others be work, working and active. And there are others that sit and say, what just happened? I don't know what you are, but I would much rather be a person investing my time, energy, and talent into something productive, particularly something to do with the gospel of Christ. Clovis Campbell said it this way. He said, it's better to make a thousand failures than to be too cowardly to never undertake anything. You see, when we fear failure, we fear uncertainty, we fear taking risks, we are left paralyzed. So sometimes in life, we don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't take action because we're just too lazy to do it. Other times, we are just paralyzed by the world around us, and we just never step out by faith and do what God has asked us to do. Uncertainty and risk... We would like for both of them to be completely eliminated from our lives. We want things to be exactly how we want them to be. Then we'll do something. My my dear friend, if you are waiting for life to be perfect and your circumstances to be perfect and there to be no uncertainty and there to be no risk in your life, you're going to be waiting a really, really, really long time. In fact, I was preaching this message this morning and I got to about this point and I remembered, and I was thinking about the Highfield family. Somebody asked me right before the service, they said, now how much money do they need to purchase the house in South Africa to continue expanding their ministry? As of Thursday, that number was about $3,000. If you remember, just a very few short weeks ago, that number was $150,000. And in a very short period of time, God has provided for them the financial means, other than $3,000, which by now may very well have come in, that they were simply waiting to make an offer on that home, purchase that home, so that they can now continue to expand their ministry in South Africa. Imagine when I talked to Jonathan a couple of times on the phone, if he said, you know, there's a lot of risk in this. A lot of uncertainty. I mean, where are we going to get that kind of money? Well, you know, Jonathan, the risk is just too great, too much uncertainty. I wouldn't do anything. I would probably just, eh, it's too big. I wouldn't try. I would just, eh, it's too hard. Imagine if he said that. 
Instead, he said, we're going to take the risk. We're going to face the uncertainty because we believe this is what God wants us to do. $147,000 later, God has said, yes, this is what I am planning for your ministry. How willing are you to obey God even when it's hard, even when you don't have all of the answers, even when life around you is filled with uncertainty and seemingly insurmountable risk? Are you paralyzed by that? Are you afraid of that? Jay Adams, the counselor, one of the pioneers of Christian counseling, said this. He said, no one can be aware of all the variables in any situation. You're never going to get there. You're never going to arrive. That brings me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This is arguably one of the more complicated texts to sort of understand. Again, it is Hebrew poetry, there is imagery here, so we want to study this with a hermeneutic of humility, okay, and understand that we are coming at this, submitting ourselves to the authority of Scripture, but also understanding that there is imagery here that we need to understand. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first eight verses, and we'll come back and take them a piece at a time. Notice what Solomon said. He said, "'Cast your bread upon the waters.'" For you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. That phrase is the key to this section, by the way. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Solomon's message is clear, and we'll dissect it in a moment. But your life should be characterized by action and faith, not by inactivity and doubt. So often we worry so often that worry wastes our allotment of time and energy and it steals us, it robs us of tomorrow's opportunities. We just don't see God's direction and wisdom at times. To summarize Solomon's basic problems that he's highlighted for us so far, this is, this is, in a sense, a financial text, okay? But I don't want us to limit it, because I don't think Solomon limits it, just to financial matters. This is dealing with all the resources of life, but he is using a business illustration to talk to us about our allotment or our use or investment of our gifts and abilities. So just to summarize what Solomon has said so far about wealth and money and business and those matters... He has told us that being consumed with work in the quest for wealth 
will never satisfy your soul. That's why he said in Ecclesiastes 4.8, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Okay, they will not bring you contentment and satisfaction no matter how hard you try. Even if this little chain was worth $2 million, it would not bring you contentment. Number two, falling into poverty and the suffering that follows, we studied last week, because of laziness or misfortune is not to be the, the, the attitude or the work ethic of a believer. He said in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 18, through sloth, through laziness, the roof sinks in, and through idleness or laziness, the house leaks. So the picture is of this broken down house where someone is slothful and neglectful and not fulfilling their responsibilities. And now when we come to chapter 11, he's going to talk to us about our other tendency to not invest in matters of eternity. So we're going to look at three basic truths from this text. First, this is kind of a, as our pastor in Philly used to say, this is a duh Okay, but sometimes, duh, we need to be reminded of. First, he says, activity produces reward. My friend, it might very well be, as you look at your life, it seems pretty barren, and it doesn't seem that God is blessing your life. It may be it's because you're not investing your time, energy, and talent into God's work. Solomon is going to warn us about never becoming paralyzed by uncertainty. In fact, look at verse 1 and 2 again and just kind of look at these more specifically. First verse of chapter 11 begins with a command. You are commanded to cast your bread upon the waters. I don't know what your mind does of an image of that, but I, I, I will publicly humiliate myself and tell you what I see. And that is this. I see this little paper mache boat. And you're taking little crumbs of bread and you're sort of sticking, you know, the bread in there, you know, your, your loaf of wonder bread or whatever. You rip it up and you put it in this little boat. You go out to some pond and you push it out into the water and just see what happens. Okay, I'm just casting my bread upon the water. Well, he uses here a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, if you're interested, is the word lahem. And the word means commodity. It could be bread or it could be any other commodity that a business person may sell. And the picture here is you have to cast your bread, your commodities, you have to send them out to sea. You have to invest them. You have to send them out. Well, why? Well, the reason in the end of verse one is because for you may find after many days it will come back to you. There is a return on your investment. If I never send out the bread, I never invest, then guess what? I'm never going to receive anything, the blessings of life in return. Now, verse 2, I don't want to bog down in this terribly long, but verse 2, he uses a Hebrew construction to basically say, this is, this is happening lots and lots of times. Notice the construction. It is X. Oh, man, we're going to algebra class now. X plus one, okay? He says, give portion to seven or even to eight, okay? He's talking, and by the way, this is used all over the places, all other places of Scripture and Proverbs and other places. This picture is used simply to talk about diversifying your investments, 
He is saying, send out, cast your bread in a commercial, in a commercial context, send out many of them. Now, I'm not making that up in case you think, well, what's this got to do with trade and, and maritime ventures and what's this got to do with ships? Well, First Kings gives us a little insight into Solomon's background, and the historian here writing in First Kings tells us this, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at a Zion Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. I love this historical account, by the way. The historian also writing under the inspiration of God in a very different genre of literature. He's not writing poetically here. He is writing like you would read in a history book. Here was what Solomon did. He built ships. This is where he built them. This is what he did with them. Verse 27 of 1 Kings, And Hiram sent the fleet and his servants, servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought forth from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. In the next chapter of 1 Kings, chapter 10, verse 22, For the king had a fleet of ships at Tarshish, at the sea, and the fleet of Hiram. And once every three years, the fleet of ships used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. The idea is Solomon was sending out these ships, many ships, sending them out as an investment to get a return back. Here's, okay, I say all that to simply say this in English. We would say it this way. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. In other words, you have to be a person who is purposefully, not haphazardly, purposefully investing. Investing in what? The stock market? Sure. Investing in my retirement fund? Sure. I would suggest that. But don't limit this just to financial matters. He's not just talking about a business transaction. He's talking about this principle within your life. If you want to experience the blessings of God, the rewards of God, then you have to invest. I was thinking about this in, the, in between the two services. Here's, here's how my personality works. You do the right thing because it's the right thing. I've ne- okay, this is just me. I've never been a fan of rewarding people for what they're supposed to do. You did what you were supposed to do. Why would you get a trophy for that? Yay, you cleaned your room. You're supposed to. I went to work. You're supposed to. Like, that's what you do. So, like, I've never been a fan of, like, charts and stickers and you do what you're supposed to do because it's the right thing to do. And I've, I'll be honest with you, I've struggled with this whole idea even of eternal reward because in, in Jay's bizarre mind, reward should not be my motivation. My motivation should be obedience to God. And whatever happens as a result of that, that's what happens. However... There is a principle in Scripture that obedience is rewarded. It doesn't mean you get whatever you want, okay? It's not the health and wealth gospel nonsense. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. However, there is a sense of saying that there is a blessing that comes with investing my time, talent, gifts, and abilities into eternity, 
that I am working, laboring hard for the gospel. It was interesting. I did not even remember this until Friday. And if I didn't remember it, you probably don't remember it either. Several years ago, four or five years ago, for um, Vision Sunday in January, which was really weird this year because of the COVID thing, is I actually used this text to talk about investing 1% more of your time, energy, and talent into eternity. Just 1% more. And the picture is that if I am going to invest and I want return on my investment, then I have to make sure that I am doing my responsibility. Now, I want to also highlight this. Notice when Solomon talks about investing, when he talks about send out many ships, and he says at the end of verse 2, you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. He is not negating the sovereignty of God. He is arguing that, look, there is human responsibility to take action. There is human responsibility to be responsible. But at the end of the day, it ultimately comes down to God's sovereignty that and we'll get to this in a moment, about circumstances that are remarkably out of our control, questions that we will never answer in this life. And he says that you have to rest in the sovereignty of God and you must do what God has asked you to do. So let me just summarize these first couple of verses this way. Without an investment, there is no hope of future reward. Being paralyzed by speculation will bog you down with worry and keep you from taking action. So to be successful, you have to have wise planning, substantial investment, and faithful action. Now, jump to the New Testament for a moment. Because this principle is also seen in texts that we find in the New Testament. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, when the Apostle Paul says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The problem in your life, the, way you may, the reason you may feel dry and you have a barren soul and you're just not enjoying the, the, the Lord and you're not enjoying uh, your, your life as, you, as you're kind of going through the motions of life, it may be, my dear friend, just because you're not investing anything. You're not taking your own time and energy and saying, I'm just, I'm just a broken piece of clay. I'm just a frail human being with weaknesses, with problems, with imperfections. And that God has asked me, as Paul says, to sow the seeds of righteousness, to just labor for God and not worry about whether or not my rewards are X, Y, or Z. Who cares? I'm just laboring because it is what God has commanded me to do. Galatians chapter 6, Paul also highlights this. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will also he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, uh, will, will, to, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You have to sow, and he'll get to this, Solomon will get to it in a moment, you have to sow in order for you to reap. Yesterday I was reading, uh, it's kind of a children's book, and it's actually a, a book called The Wish Giver. And in this book, The Wish Giver, there is a particular little girl that I found interesting. Her name is Polly. And the point of this book is there is this person who gives these 
uh, people an opportunity to have a wish come true that they want or whatever. And this little girl wishes that everyone would like her. And I won't go into the details of the book of what happens. They get answered very differently than the characters want them to be. But what is interesting is this little girl, Polly, was a stinker. And she started to learn this process or this principle of sowing and reaping. You see, everything that came out of Polly's mouth was mean, nasty, critical, judgmental. And Polly, for the life of her, couldn't figure out why nobody liked her. Well, Polly, you are reaping what you're sowing. If you want to be a person that someone wants... I mean, how many of you really like being around critical, judgmental, mean-spirited people? Aren't they just fun? Don't they just make you go, yay? Polly had to learn to control her tongue. Polly, speak kindness. Speak in such a way that shows respect to other people, shows deference to other people. And guess what happened? Polly, it's a children's story, understand, that Polly begins to experience that when I sow kindness, guess what I get back? Kindness. In fact, a couple of times, the characters are so shocked that something kind comes out of her mouth, they go like, what, what did you say? You were nice? And so this, this principle dominates not just business, but it dominates our spiritual life. If I want to reap the blessings of the Christian life, my dear friend, it starts with investment. And in our culture of just sit back and everything's supposed to cater to me, that is antithetical to the scriptures. It just is. It has nothing to do with you. It's about investing in the work of God. So, secondly, the second side of this coin, that's also kind of a, a duh, but in verses 3 through 6, the second truth we want to learn here is inactivity produces nothing. Notice verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will be. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now let's just notice a couple of truths about verse 3, and then we'll look at one about verse 4. Verse 3, Solomon is hitting very hard this very, I want to rattle your cage a little bit. Okay, you ready? Solomon is telling you, you are not in control. You're not God. He says, you know what? If the clouds are full of rain, guess what's going to happen? It's going to rain. The weatherman can predict the rain. They can tell you the time the rain is going to arrive. You can walk outside and see the dark clouds rolling in on the horizon. And you can wish it won't rain. You can do a rain dance if you like. And guess what? It's going to rain. Because you're not in control. You can't erase all uncertainty. That's Solomon's point. You cannot erase all, you know what? I wanted to do this party on July 10th of next year, but it might rain. Oh, let's just not do it. And he also says if the tree falls to the north or to the south, it's a merism. It means wherever this tree falls, guess what? You can't stop it. It's going to happen. It's coming down. If the tree falls, the tree is going to fall. You are not able to control all of these circumstances. Then I particularly find verse 4 a little bit more 
I think, applicable to us as, as people because most of us at least cognitively understand that we're not in control. We at least cognitively understand that we're not God. We try to live like we are and we try to control our little kingdom. Particularly, we try to control people. But generally, we understand that we know that it's wrong. But Solomon's point in verse 4, I think, is more problematic for us. And it's more challenging for us because notice what he says. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The point is, the person waiting for the absolute perfect conditions before they do anything. I love Proverbs 20, verse 4. It puts it this way, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, or you could say it this way, by the reason of cold, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. He's waiting for the optimal circumstance, then he'll do something. I don't know what your perfect day looks like. My perfect day looks like 62 and sunny. No wind. That's my perfect day. So under Solomon's principle here, if I wake up, and I know I've got, I grew up in farm country, by the way, I've seen this lived out most of my life. If I go out into the field and I say, well, 62 and sunny, light breeze, five miles an hour or less, I'll plant, but it's 58 and a little windy. Man, I'll wait till tomorrow. Bad conditions today. Now, what would be far more traumatic to me and troubling to me is if it was 97 degrees and sunny. No, thank you. I want nothing to do with the heat. I'll just stay in the air conditioning all day. You know what? It's a lot better in the comfort of my air conditioned house. I'm not going out there and sweating. I'll wait until tomorrow. Solomon's saying that is the heart of procrastination. If you are waiting for all uncertainty to be taken out of your life before you act for God, you're going to be waiting a really, really long time. If you are waiting for every ounce of risk to be erased from your life and nothing else can be risky, no more risk, you are going to be waiting a very long time. If you are waiting for the optimal chance, the perfect circumstances for you to take action, you're going to be waiting a very very long time and when we are consumed with fear fear of risk fear of uncertainty we don't act we just never get around to it it's too dangerous i like the certainty of my life the way it is i'm not going to step out by faith and do the next thing that that's too risky i'm not doing that Okay. Did y'all get that? (laughs) Or, or, I am so consumed with making sure everything is optimized to my liking that I am suffering paralysis by analysis. I am now just completely given in to my circumstances. I am completely driven by the fact that things are not exactly as I want them to do. I fall into procrastination and I will never act. Now, here's another aspect to this that feeds our procrastination. 
He says in verse 5, he says, As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Sometimes we just demand that God give us all of the answers to every question that we have. And Solomon uses this picture here of a woman who is pregnant with child. Now, I know this. I know life begins at conception. What I don't, let me say this. What I also know is that there is a stark difference between human beings and animals. Particularly, specifically, we have a soul. And Solomon says, you do not know exactly how God takes a soul and at what moment the body and the soul become one. Yes, I believe that happens at conception. But how does God do that? Anybody want to come explain? I don't know. How exactly does the Trinity work? Three persons all in one God equally God. How does that work? Oh, take out your pen. I'm explaining it to you. How was Jesus flesh, human flesh, and God at the same time? I have that all figured out. After the service, I'll explain everything to you. I don't know. I just know that's what Scripture teaches. I had a friend a number of years ago intelligent man brilliant he's one of those people i went to lunch with him on a regular basis and you need like a dictionary to look up the words he's using because simpletons like me i have no idea what you're talking about the only way i could follow his conversation was the context of what we were talking about and i could like come away with some really good vocabulary words like who knew what that word is i never heard that word before he's that kind of guy he was also one of the only true, adamant, to the core of his soul, atheists I've ever met. Most people who claim to be atheists are far more agnostic than they are atheists. Agnostic just simply means they, they doubt whether or not there's a God or not. They don't really know. They don't really care, but they don't, they're not adamant so much as this man was. He was adamant. There was absolutely no God. You are simply the result of some chaotic evolutionary process and when you're dead you're dead god is not real there is no god there is no creator you get the picture and i was sitting there with him i used to frustrate him i have a spiritual gift of frustrating people i'm really good at it and i frustrated him he was starting to get agitated he was a very mild-mannered man but he started to get very agitated he said he looked across the table and he said, are you telling me there's things about god you don't know yeah lots of them how much time you have? I, I can't put God in my nice little pretty theological box and say, oh yeah, I know everything there is to know about God. Solomon says, no, you don't. My, my personal favorite verse in seminary when I would sit down to take an exam, particularly like a Hebrew exam or something, and I didn't know the answer was always Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. In other words, there are things in this life you do not understand. There are plans that God has for this world that you do not understand. That's why when we lose our minds over the headlines of our age, I lose my mind. 
God's either God or he's not. He either has a plan or he doesn't. And I certainly don't pretend I know every intricacy of his plan for this world. I don't know, and I'm a fool if I believe I know. I just know that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But listen to this, the things revealed, the things God has told you in his word, belong to us and our children forever. Why? So we can be arrogant and pompous and tell people we know more than them. No. Those things are revealed to us by God, get this, that we may do all of the works of his law. In other words, that we might like obey them. I I quite frankly wish we'd spend a whole lot less time worrying about the things we can't answer and we don't know and we get wrapped up in all these crazy hypothetical conversations. Know what you know because God said it and do it. I love the Young's book. We're going to talk about God's will in a couple weeks. I'm like really worked up about it. And I can't remember the subtitle. It's really, really long. But the title of the book is Just Do Something. Stop sitting around worrying about uncertainty and risk and stop procrastinating. Tomorrow might be better. Start waiting for God to give you every answer to every question that you think you deserve. Do something. Get out and use your gifts and abilities for the work of the gospel. Whatever God has called you to be, the the reality, as he highlights for us here, as I mentioned, is really found at the end of verse verse, uh, 5 when he says, you do not know the works of God who made everything. Stop pretending that you do. Our faith isn't blind faith heavens no but our faith isn't based on every every answer question because guess what if you had every answer you want question you want answered there would be no more need for faith isaiah said it this way he said that we do not know the thoughts of god we do not know he said Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the uh, the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So what's the point? Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And then finally this morning, we'll come back to this theme more particularly next week, but in verses 7 and 8, Solomon says, light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What's he saying? It's really good to be alive. It's really good to have light. Eyes to see. Opportunity to experience God's creation. It's sweet. Life isn't a drudgery. Life is a gift. And he says, light is sweet, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many, many, many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. In other words, eternity is a lot longer. But enjoy the life God has given to you. Verse 9, we'll talk about next week. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Enjoy life. Invest your life. Reap the rewards of your labor. And enjoy the life has given to you. Let me leave you this morning with four timeless truths to consider in your life. Number one, we cannot allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fear. Sometimes as parents, we get paralyzed letting our children become adults. Don't be overcome by fear. Number two, we have to acknowledge that uncertainty and risk in life are absolutely inevitable. It's unavoidable. We believe we can build a little bubble around ourselves and never take any risk and never... I guess you can, but that's a pretty sterile way to live. It's pretty boring. And it still doesn't guarantee your safety, by the way. Number three, we can never taste success. And by success, I, don't, I do not mean the worldly definition of success. I just mean success in a biblical sense. I cannot experience success if I remain inactive. It's never going to happen. It's the kid sitting in the middle of his room saying, I wish this room was clean. That's not going to be clean until you do something. And number four, and hear this one, wisdom. Solomon's talking much about living a wise life, and you should. But wisdom cannot keep you from all uncertainty. But it can help you manage it. It can keep you from compounding your mistakes. Keep you from making unwise decisions, even unwise investments. My dad taught me very young that from the moment you get your first real job, you start investing into the day that you will someday not be able to physically work. Invest for your future. And as a 22-year-old kid, and I got my first real job, and I'm sitting there, and some person in human resources is sitting there saying, okay, here's your retirement fund. How much do you want to put into it? That's the wrong question. My answer is none. I want every penny for Jay. I don't want to put anything in there. But my dad's words kept coming back to me, and I put down whatever I put down. And over the next however many years, man, that thing started to grow. Investment. Diversified my portfolio, my financial advisor said. Please, diversify. Don't put all your money into one account, into one stock or whatever. Diversify, and I did that. And then I remember the year, a few years ago, and I got that quarterly statement. And the, the stock market tanked. It's like, there's zeros missing. What happened? And I'm sitting there like, well, I guess I really am going to work until the day I die, because my money is gone. You know, it's a little risky putting money into a retirement fund, so I just won't put any in. Serving God can be risky. A lot of uncertainty. I mean, God may call me to Africa. God may call me to Eastern Europe. God may call me to Mexico. God may call me to Asia. 
Obeying God is risky. He might ask me to do something that I'm uncomfortable with. He might. But more often than not, he just wants you to serve right where you are. Not being paralyzed by fear. Not demanding answers to every question that you have. But investing in eternity right where you are. Derek Kidner said this. He said, if there are risks in everything, it is better to fail in launching out than in hugging one's resources to oneself. I love that. I'd rather fail investing in eternity than to sit doing nothing. You see, we are to live and act by wisdom. We are to live and act by faith. And we leave the wondrous results in the hands of Almighty God. Solomon is pleading with you. And he's pleading with me. Just do something. And do it for his glory. And he will bless you. And he will use you. And everything that happens through you is because of him and for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this text and challenge that we find in these verses. Probably all of us see ourselves in one verse or another. We get wrapped up in our own fears, our own anxiety, our own hesitations. And some of us, Lord, are are paralyzed by it. Lord, may we be people of boldness, of wisdom, and willing to invest for eternity. It's not always easy. It's not always fun, but it's what you've called us to do is to be faithful with what you have entrusted to us. May we be people that are sowing seeds of righteousness so that we would reap, and more particularly, we would reap not just for our benefit, but so that the gospel would continue to move forward. Lord, we ask now that as we are heading our separate ways, give us safety as we drive home today and restful afternoon as we prepare for a new week tomorrow. Dismiss us now with your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning.